I think it's fair to say that we need to be careful sometimes about how we express our faith, how we express our hope. There are many very real challenges to hope. If I were to uh, pass the mic around this room to a diverse group of people, there would be all sorts of challenges to hope that you could name. A family relationship that has not worked out as you would hope, that's fractured, seemingly beyond repair. Perhaps a marriage relationship that has not worked out. Perhaps bereavement. In this day and age, increasingly, perhaps financial worries. How will the bills be paid? And we need to be careful. I've mentioned the 70s once already, but you used to be able to buy stickers in Christian bookshops when there was such a thing as Christian bookshops, which, which said things like, Hallelujah anyway, or Jesus is the answer. Well, in what sense is Jesus the answer to the electricity bill that you can't pay? We kind of know what we mean, but we need to be careful that we don't come across as making Jesus and faith utterly irrelevant, as being nothing but a platitude that we offer to people. There are quite serious challenges to hope uh, that those inside the community of faith face no less than those outside it. Christians, for example, are not somehow immune from cancer or other serious illness. And this past week, one of the headlines was that for the first time ever, less than 50% of the population of England and Wales would identify themselves as Christian. There is a sense in which we can ask the question, is Christianity therefore in decline? What does it mean to say that our hope is in Christ? And perhaps more pertinently at this time of year, Is it really true that God reigns? Is it really true? Well, the emphatic answer of the gospel writers and the whole of the New Testament is, yes, it is true. That's why we wrote the things we did, because we believed wholeheartedly and we were prepared to die believing that somehow in Jesus God became king, and God reassumed, as it were, reign over his creation. And we sometimes look at that perhaps and say, well, of course, that was, that was easy to believe in their day. It's so much more difficult in ours. Let me tell you, it was no less difficult to believe in their day than it is in ours. And the idea that God would one day become king over his creation would come to save his people, runs right back to the Old Testament, not least some of the great prophecies of Isaiah. And these prophecies of a future idyllic time were no less difficult for the people of Israel to believe in Isaiah's day, some 700 odd years before the birth of Christ, than they are in ours. Isaiah's writing covers a a huge period of time, And he covers, in a sense, the the troubles that lead to Israel being conquered by a foreign power, Assyria. 
And then he looks ahead to the time when Assyria itself will be conquered by Babylon and the people of Israel will be taken into exile. Not a happy time. And this vision of peace and harmony that Clem read for us from Isaiah 11 suggests that after the storm of judgment and exile, God will act to calm and restore, making the world a safe place for even the most vulnerable. Think about that imagery in nature of animals that would normally be predator-prey relationships sitting down together, a little child playing at the hole of the cobra. So the first truth we take from that is that God disrupts and God embraces. That vision of harmony is set in the context of judgment coming on God's people because of their rejection of God. But God is sovereign over all. God disrupts and God embraces. And according to your particular personality, you'll probably find those more or less difficult to deal with. If you're a person who tends to avoid conflict, you don't like it, you like things to be as they are, you will rejoice in the fact that God embraces. If you're somebody who's quite comfortable upsetting the apple cart, as we say, then you'll probably celebrate the fact that our God is a God who disrupts. Our learning in that regard is that God does both, and therefore If you more naturally enjoy upsetting the apple cart, you may need to ask God to help you see those times when you need to embrace rather than disrupt. If you're one of those people who will always tend to embrace, you may need God to give you the wisdom to know when it's right to disrupt. Because God does both. And this vision of harmony issues from the reign of the the just reign of God's king. Somebody on whom the spirit of the Lord will rest, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and of might, of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And this person's judgment will not be based on outward appearances. In other words, it will not be partial, it will be impartial. It will be based on righteousness. It will be, therefore, a justice that isn't vengeance. And it will be justice particularly for the poor. And that's really important because sometimes when we talk about God's just reign and justice, we can spiritualize it in such a way that it has nothing to do with the socio-political reality of the times in which we live. When actually, for Isaiah, it absolutely does. He's envisioning a time where because God reigns and because God's people willingly submit to his reign, there will be justice for the poor. Social wrongs will be righted because of the reign of this king. It is not simply that religious festivals will continue or that somehow attendance at religious festivals will increase. This is earthy political stuff. And living under this reign, according to this vision, creates a community where everybody flourishes. That's what the vision is of. 
And not just where people flourish, but so does the planet. So it's a very timely message for our times. We face a climate crisis. We are losing biodiversity at an alarming rate. We are not demonstrating God's just and gracious reign over the whole of his creation. When we do so, Isaiah's vision says, the whole of creation will flourish. Human communities, but also, if you like, the cosmic community. When God's people submit to his reign, Isaiah is saying, they are a blessing to each other, so we flourish, but they are also a blessing to God's wider creation. Which, of course, as you've heard me say before, is exactly how it was meant to be. The reason why Adam and Eve were created and placed in the Garden of Eden was to take care of God's creation, to exercise and reflect his just and wise rule over his creation. The Gospel writers, at least 700 years after Isaiah 11, were convinced that that wait for God's king came to an end with the arrival on the scene of Jesus of Nazareth. That's why they wrote the Gospels. They were convinced that something revolutionary had happened. This event, this cosmic event for which people had waited hundreds of years had happened, albeit in the most unexpected way, in the son of a carpenter from Nazareth but they believed that something had happened that changes everything. And in the reading we had from Matthew's Gospel, we have John the Baptist pictured as preparing the way for Jesus' arrival, laying down the tarmac, as it were, getting the highway ready on which the king would come. And for John, he says the way to get ready is to repent, and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And his point seems to be that it's, it's relatively easy to say, I repent, uh, I've turned away from one way of living and I've embraced another. But if it's real, then it will show itself in life. And his condemnation, as it were, of the Pharisees and Sadducees who came to him was picturing them like snakes slithering out from under a bonfire just after it's lit. You can't just say, I repent. It's actually got to issue in something. And the fact that John is baptising in the Jordan um, really echoes the first exodus across the Jordan. And the gospel writers are really setting up the scene here for the fact that Jesus comes to lead a new exodus, to launch God's new creation. And as with Isaiah's vision, we know from what the gospel writers tell us that for them, the revolution that Jesus brings, establishing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, is political as well as personal. Jesus did not simply come to encourage increased attendance at the synagogue. One of the earliest Christian creeds was simply to say, Jesus is Lord, something we say quite frequently. But when you say that in first century Roman occupied territory, it's a treasonous statement. 
because the Romans held that there was one Lord and that was Caesar. So when the Christian, the first Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were in a sense undermining everything. But they said it because that's what they believed, that in Jesus God had finally come to rescue his people and to launch his new creation, establishing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, taking to himself the role of that king described in Isaiah and also in Psalm 72. And this means, of course, that we possibly need to rethink our oft-quoted idea that Christmas is a time for the children. That may be a bit too twee. Christmas is a time of revolution. This is God coming, in a sense, to turn the world upside down. Or, as it were, to put it back as it should be. Reflecting on these words, um, Sally Foster Fulton says, At the advent of Advent, it's worth remembering who we're waiting for. Not a child in a manger, all swaddling clothes and innocence, but a man on a mission, with an uncompromising agenda, one that gives the whole world to the meek, one that asks us to give up all that the world tells us is important, one that says that true power can be found housed in the frailty of forgiveness, the virtue of vulnerability, that says there is freedom in saddling ourselves to the needs of others. We are waiting for a rebel. So get ready. Because if you acknowledge his birth, if you are on your guard, if you lay a stake in his claim that God can burst through and change the world, then he'll have no choice but to begin that change in you. Remember who we're waiting for. Business as usual, it is not. So if that Old Testament hope of God coming was realised in Jesus and the New Testament writers clearly believed that it was. Our submitting to Christ's reign in our lives ought to make us carriers of that hope. Isaiah's vision of harmony and justice is realised through obedience, not by waving a magic wand. The onus is on us as God's people to be a blessing to each other and to be a blessing to the whole of creation. We cannot read Isaiah's wonderful vision of justice and harmony and think that somehow God will do that apart from us. It is true that God could do it apart from us, but the whole story of scripture points in the direction of God has chosen to work through his human creation. To realise his victory and to establish his kingdom on earth as in heaven. How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? You'll have heard various answers uh, to that. 
The answer Tom Wright gives is, Jesus has already changed it. It's your job to go and switch it on. Which is true. We are ourselves, in, at this Advent time, we remember the waiting for Jesus' first arrival, but we find ourselves also in a period of waiting for his reappearance on earth. And what we need to realise is that this period of waiting is not an idle waiting, clutching our tickets to heaven, as it were. This is an active waiting. It is our job to switch on, as it were, the light bulb that Jesus has changed. It is our responsibility in this time to find creative ways to share hope, to share joy, peace and love. Those are the kinds of things that lay down the highway for Jesus' reappearance. That we've got the road ready to welcome him. We're demonstrating to him that actually his reign has a place in our lives. Reflecting on the Isaiah passage and this idea of our waiting time now not being idle, but being active and creative and constructive, Tom Schumann offers this reflection. Advent's prophet Isaiah offers us a vision of a time when enemies will sit down and talk with one another, when predators will take naps with their former prey, when carnivals will become vegetarians. And we read such words and nod our heads as we smile and say to ourselves, not a chance, Isaiah. We watch reality TV and we know this is not the way the world operates. Is it only a fantasy, a utopian dream, a pie-in-the-sky wish that will never be fulfilled? Seems like it, doesn't it? After all, our cat and dog can't even get along with one another. So how can we expect the cow and the bear and the lion and the calf to become willing playmates? And we humans, well, we all know how hard it is to let go of the hurt that someone has done to us. To be willing to lay down the grudge we have against that sibling from so many years ago. We all know how long we can hold on to the words our spouse hurled at us in anger and how a perceived slight or an unfulfilled expectation can fester in a congregation. Maybe we need to take Isaiah's words to heart and let a child lead us. Certainly the Christ child, but it could be any child. Watch kids at play. Things are going smoothly and suddenly something happens. Anger erupts. Words fly about like leaves on an autumn afternoon. Best friends tell one another they never want to see each other again as long as they live, as they stomp off home. And then a day, an hour, or even a few minutes later, they are racing one another down to the playground to laugh and play and care for one another for the rest of their lives. The words have drifted away. The anger has melted into friendship. The grudges have been left behind as they grab hands and swing in circles. Every day we see God's kingdom and Isaiah's vision of it enacted before our eyes. If only we notice and listen and let the children lead us.
Here's the almost unbelievable truth. God created you and me to play our part in realising the vision of community and cosmic flourishing described in Isaiah 11. We have a choice each and every day, each and every moment, amid really challenging circumstances of our lives and the lives of others, we have a choice to choose hope over hate. We have a choice to do our bit to enact this vision of harmony and restoration, to realise the victory that we believe Jesus has won, or not. We need, of course, to establish the kingdom on earth as in heaven, following the example of Jesus himself, who did it not by force, not by compulsion, but by selfless love, choosing each moment of each day, in each relationship, in each encounter, to choose hope over hate, to choose to do the will of God and not his own. And this hope that we carry, of course, should make us a people of welcome. Because of the reconciliation that Jesus brought, that translates into welcome. The start of a new relationship, even between natural or former enemies. The hope we have in Christ should open our arms to all as we choose hope over hate. I mentioned at the beginning how that perhaps we were a bit discouraged uh, in the past week by the news that uh, the number of people identifying themselves as Christian has declined. I want to close uh, with the reflections of a chap called Paul Woolley, who now heads up the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. He offers this reflection on that news. The census figures should encourage us to be more intentional about living all of life with God. Christianity grew exponentially in just a few centuries because of the way the early Christians behaved in their everyday lives and work. In contrast to other groups, Christians remained in urban areas during the plague, caring for the sick and dying. Christian populations grew faster because of their opposition to infanticide and because women were valued. Instead of fighting against their persecutors, Christians willingly went to their martyrdom while praying for their captors. The world is not the same as it was back then, but as we seek to come to terms with a changing society, there's a great deal that we can learn from those who have gone before us. And if we can be a truly faithful presence, we might yet see the growth of the church in our lifetimes. The people of God have waited. The people of God are waiting. But there is work to do while we wait. Amen.